With just a few days left in June, I know that some of us are barely hanging on. The post-Pride hangover is no joke. As a recovery mentor, I understand that sobriety is not just black or white, and recovery definitely doesn't look the same for everyone. As long as we're cutting out a few drinks and decreasing the substance that creates our anxiety, that's progress to me. And that's why I'm so excited to be partnering with Sunnyside to shed some light on mindful drinking. Create your own recovery and join me for the post-Pride Cleanse. It's time to revive and thrive, my friends. Click the link in today's show notes for your free 30-day challenge. You can track your progress with our community, and there's a chance to win some cool prizes. We can all shake the glitter out of our hair and other regions together. Let's revive and thrive. Click the link in today's show notes for the post-Pride Cleanse today. Hey, want to start a podcast? Spotify has a platform that allows you to create one so easily you won't believe it. And the best part, it's totally free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters allows you to record, edit, and distribute your episodes right from your phone or computer. You can also add songs from Spotify's library, edit with cool transitions, and then hear your show on all the big networks, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and more. You can also earn money through ads and subscriptions. And once again, for those in the back, it's completely free with no catch. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to spotify.com slash podcasters to get started today. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Sobriety Diaries. I'm your host, Nate Kelly, a recovering alcoholic seven years from my last drink, a recovery mentor and podcast producer. I am so grateful to be bringing you these powerful stories of recovery told by you, those who live them. Please share this podcast with anyone who may need it today. And with that, let's open the diary on episode 89. Today's a big one, my friends. We have founding member of Maroon 5, life coach, author, speaker. We're going to talk about the new book, Harder to Breathe, a memoir of making Maroon 5, losing it all, and finding recovery. Please welcome Ryan Dusick. Ryan, how are you today, my friend? I'm doing very well this morning. Thanks for having me on. Again, I have to say thanks for being flexible. We were having some storms in the Midwest and my internet was not cooperating. So again, thanks for rescheduling and being flexible. Very excited for our conversation today. I want to start with the book. I'm curious what listeners or readers will find when they open it up. Is this strictly a memoir? Does it talk about the days of founding the band? Sort of what's the overall vibe of Harder to Breathe? Clever title, by the way. (laughs) Thank you very much. Yeah, it's a little bit of all of the above. My intent in writing the book, I thought about writing this book probably about 10 years before I did, because I, I knew I had an interesting story and that I had a lot of 
anecdotes from the years of forming the band and our rise to success and all the things we got to do before I left the band. But at that time, I didn't know really what the purpose of it would be other than to just say I wrote a book and maybe sell some copies and and tell some stories. It wasn't until I was in recovery from addiction, from alcoholism and from anxiety disorder and depression that came from loss and grief that I realized the book had a purpose beyond just telling some stories, which was to offer hope in recovery. And I knew that in order to do that, I had to kind of tell my whole story in a very vulnerable way. It is a memoir. It is, you know, my experience, both in the formative years of the band, but just in terms of my own mental health, my own journey, how it led to breakdown for me and how I dealt with that afterwards and eventually found recovery. So it is about the band. There's a lot about the band in there that I think people will find fun and interesting. But the undercurrent is really my story and my mental health and how I evolved and, and finally was able to find this new purpose and passion in life, which has made it all so fulfilling. That's amazing. Now, are there stories in there that you had to get an okay from? Are you still in contact with guys in the band today? What's the dynamic like there? I'm still in contact with them. Um, Adam and I, you know, we we have probably more of a, a text relationship at this point than more than anything else. But, you know, we're we're brothers, you know, we, we've known each other almost our whole lives and we're supportive of one another. They were all really enthusiastically supportive when I said that I was writing a book. They were like, why didn't you write this sooner? <laughs> you know, at the same time, yeah, of course, my intent in writing the book was not to make anyone look bad or to make it a salacious tell-all or anything like that. However, I did want to be very honest about my relationships and my experiences because you know, I felt that relationships are so much of how your mental health manifests in the world. And it was really important for me to be honest about my responsibilities, the ways in which I was, you know, accounting for my behavior and the ways in which other people were interacting with me. It's all relevant, you know, to my story. So I wanted to clear that with them. You know, I, I had them read a, um, a final draft, you know, ask them to give me any feedback or anything they were concerned about. And there, there wasn't a whole lot that they were, they were worried about. So it was great. I've seen on social media this sort of focus recently on sort of a reminiscent or reminiscing with Kara's flowers and some of the earlier days. Is that all part of your journey? Is there a bit of coming to terms with things that perhaps happened in, in your past? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, when I left the band, it was really painful. It was heartbreaking. It was devastating, really. I mean, it, it was something that I had spent over a decade building with my best friends, all the way from my parents' garage, all the way up to the biggest stages in the world, winning Grammy Awards and, and selling millions of records and all that. So walking away from that at the height of it, just as we were reaching that apex, was really heartbreaking. And for a long time, there was a lot of grief and there was really trauma involved with it. You know, all of the good memories were secondary to the pain that I had experienced. And so it was hard for me to revisit a lot of that without having really mixed emotions, to say the least. Writing this book, I think in some ways, in a large way, uh, was therapeutic for me. It was closure and it was a, a way to work through what was traumatic, but also begin to embrace everything that was so wonderful about it also and come to a place of gratitude, which, you know, gratitude is is so important to recovery, but it's important to your mental health in general. And looking back and realizing, yeah, it ended badly for me and it was really painful, but I wouldn't change everything before that for the world. You know, it was a wonderful experience 
like I said, with my, my best friends for over a decade, you know, struggling and striving and succeeding and failing and supporting one another and just the camaraderie and the, and the creativity and the teamwork and collaboration and just so many amazing memories of things we did together, mostly, you know, in terms of the four and then five of us, everything else we got to do outside of that was icing on the cake. But my favorite memories are those, those moments, sleepovers in high school, you know, and we were yeah. dreaming about being rock stars and those long nights on the road, you know, just in the, in the van, making each other laugh and just the silliness, the, the, the brotherhood. So all of those memories are there and, and I cherish them. I just have to kind of make room for everything else that happened later, but it doesn't change what was special. I'm curious about how and when it did turn to a dark or unhappy place within the band and whether your addiction directly impacted your decision to leave the band and what that process looked like. Well, my addiction didn't really hit full speed until after I left the band. I would say that it was a factor in things, but it wasn't the factor. Because it hadn't manifested to the degree that it did after I had that heartbreak and then it became a really dark hole that I got into with self-medication, you know. But I, I guess I would say I was kind of a late bloomer in terms of alcohol and all that. I was a good boy. I did what my <laughs> parents told me to do. I was the responsible one. It wasn't until I was in my 20s that I tried to loosen up a little bit and have some fun with my friends and going out drinking and the that kind of stuff. And looking back, you know, at the time, it didn't seem like anything out of the ordinary, quite the contrary. I had friends that, you know, were drinking and getting sick a lot more than I was. But in retrospect, I can recognize that some of my thinking around it was already a little bit alcoholic, you know, just kind of the obsessive thoughts about it. My relationship to it was, you know, the honeymoon phase of alcoholism, right? <laughs> right? And I took that on the road with me. In 2002, we went on the road to support the album Songs About Jane. And that was the never ending tour. You know, we were on tour for pretty much four years straight wow. on that album. And at that time, having been sort of an introverted, relatively shy, sensitive kid coming into my own, I knew it was going to be a long haul for me and that it was going to be challenging to my senses to be in that circus lifestyle for that long. Town to town, sleeping where you can, right? Yeah, it's it's. It's crazy. The only choice you really have at that point is to kind of just lean into it and say, I'm, you know, flying by the seat of my pants and I'm just going to take it as it comes. And that works for some people. And it did for me for a while. I think that I adopted a different mentality than I had ever had in terms of just being, you know, happy go lucky, easygoing, just whatever the day brings, I'm I'm up yeah. for. And some days that meant, you know, tying one on and letting loose. And if we had a day off, having some fun, some days that meant having a, you know, a shot of Jack before we went on stage. And, but it wasn't to the point, like I said, that it was at least visibly affecting me. I don't remember being extremely drunk or hungover on stage or anything like that in those days, but I was having physical problems. I was having joint problems starting in my shoulder. Mm. And it wasn't until years Not later good for I, a drummer, right? No, <laughs> no, but, but you know, when I didn't have great mechanics and so it probably was kind of predictable that, that I would begin to injure myself, but it was greatly compounded by the mental health uh, issues that were going on, which I didn't recognize at the time. I knew something else was going on, but I didn't have the self-awareness or, or the support, you know, in terms of any kind of therapeutic involvement to to understand what was going on for me. But in retrospect, the ways in which I put a lot of pressure on myself, perfectionism and sort of obsessive compulsiveness, 
and just the the amount of of performance anxiety on a daily basis and and the standard that I held myself up to wearing me down over time and then when the demands of touring you know when the external pressures became so great that there was no relief really it was just constant stress and constant you know getting to a point of exhaustion and then having to keep pushing forward it was wearing all of us down but it was wearing me down to an even higher degree i think because of my my temperament by nature and because i hadn't really ever learned to play the drums properly you know <laughs> i would say that as i started breaking down and i was feeling really internally depressed about it and more and more having these ruminations that were really negative about myself and about the future of my ability to continue to perform that's when you know the drinking started to ramp up a bit more so as an escape at that point than as a way to try to have fun right and that was the shift for me and then when i had to stop playing and i found myself back home sitting in my one bedroom apartment watching the band i had created you know for a decade performing without me for tens of thousands of people every night and just watching from afar and not being able to escape it too you know because it was our songs were on the radio incessantly at that point in history and just driving oh, yes. down the street <laughs> you would see billboards and stuff you know so the drinking became much more self-medication at that point on top of literal medication that a lot of different doctors were giving me which wasn't helping anything and just compounded everything and so when I officially left the band, that's when things went really south because now I had no sort of responsibility or anything keeping me in line, so to speak. And, and right. I really dove into the, the addiction. Is that a conversation that you had first with your bandmates or agent or people close to you? How was the uh, sort of official separation? I guess I didn't realize that it was news when I wrote this book that I, I didn't choose to leave the band. I guess that's what the press release said it was their way of honoring me and allowing me to, I guess, leave with grace. They allowed me to write my own press release. And I, I think I probably wrote something like, you know, the mutually agree yeah. on yeah. time to part ways. And in some ways that was truthful, but the reality was, you know, I, I was in denial. I, I, there was no way I could have continued to perform. I would have kept trying to push and try harder because that's my nature yeah. uh, until my arms fell off. <laughs> and, I, and I really was trying to. That was part of the problem too, is just like trying way too hard as opposed to just letting go and living in acceptance, right? You know, I was playing on the road and my my drumming was getting worse and worse until, you know, we couldn't really pretend it wasn't a problem anymore. And and the guys said, you need to go home, figure out what's wrong and and come back. We'll be here, you know, whether it takes a few months or six months or a year. You know, we were, we were brothers that had started this band together. It was like, it, I really appreciated that, but it was devastating to think of you know being separated from what we were doing for that long and as time dragged on with all the doctors and all the physical therapy and everything it just wasn't getting better if anything it was getting worse and so it came time around 2005 six to start thinking about the next album you know it had been four or five years since uh, we did songs about jane and it was time for a follow-up which we had been working on we'd been writing songs on the road and we were we had a lot of going into the next thing but they were very concerned, you know, even if you can get through this record and we can make a good record, like the second we get out on the road again, you know, we're going to have a world tour booked. And, you know, how do we know this isn't going to happen again? It probably will happen again. And then we're going to have to cancel a whole tour. We're going to have to scramble and try to find a replacement. So it just wasn't tenable at that point. And we had this really painful moment 
So it's the opening of my book. The, the prologue of the book is this scene. We were writing and recording demos for the next album at a place called The Mansion in Laurel Canyon. Lore has it. It was Harry Houdini's mansion. Wow. Uh, so we called it the, the Houdini Mansion. It's, <laughs> it was made famous by the Red Hot Chili Peppers movie Funky Monks because they recorded, actually they record all their records there, I think. Uh, it was a, a old Hollywood mansion that Rick Rubin bought and turn into a recording studio. The energy and, is probably just palpable. It is. It's an amazing <laughs> place. I wish I didn't have such a negative memory associated yeah. with it because, yeah. you know, it was it was a special place that we dreamt about recording since we were teenagers and we loved the Chili Peppers. It, but, you know, that was the scene of the moment, you know, they called me into the dining room, this old, you know, wood paneled 1920s dining room in an otherwise dilapidated old estate. It's it's pretty worn <laughs> down. And and you know Adam kind of assumed the position of the leader of the band at that point and and told me, you know, this is not this is untenable moving forward, so it's time to part ways and um I begged and I pleaded, you know, and yeah. I, I tried to I groveled and it was it was sad, you know, it was it was the end of a, a whole era for all of us and I, it took me a long time to realize that it was just as hard for them as it was for me. Right. I mean, not just as hard, but it was hard for them too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then you say you go back to isolation era, if if that's fair, to be back in your one bedroom. I guess, how bad did things get? Or how long was it until you decided to sort of turn things around? It took a while. I wish it was quicker. Um, I had to go through all the stages of addiction, yeah. you know. And, and it wasn't until I was writing this book, I think, that I realized I wasn't just going through the stages of alcoholism. I was going through the stages of grief, you know, because I, I had lost something so profound, not just the band and, and the career, but really my whole identity that was wrapped up in being the drummer in Maroon 5. Right. And being a part of that circle of friends and, and you know, our whole world, our whole social sphere, everything that we did was centered around that band and that group of guys. So to be out of that, I didn't know who I was. You know, I, I was, I was, I lost my self-confidence completely, my sort of self-definition, uh, what it was that I thought made me me. So it became in the early stages, just depression and self-loathing and heavy drinking and escapism, you know, really this adopting this alter ego it went from the romantic stage of, of alcoholism to this sort of the negatives were, were just as prominent as mm. the positives, but pretending like it was, it was a positive experience going out and tying one on and, you know, chasing girls around and with a big smile on my face, but then yeah. ending up, you know, back at my, at my house, just feeling really depressed and, and lonely and isolated. And uh, that went on for just a couple of years. And then I went into that next phase that I'm sure, most alcoholics can relate to, which is the illusion of control, which I write oh, about. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was where I said, I'm getting my shit together, right? And yeah. uh, I'm just going to moderate. I'm going to be a drink like a gentleman. I got this. Right? No worries. Yeah. And, and so externally, all the craziness calmed down. You know, I wasn't looking like a party animal anymore and, and just really concerning people with how out of control I was. I had settled down and it looked more domestic and, and controlled. And, and I felt, I felt that I had control for that reason. And as we know, we kind of hmm. play that game with ourselves for however long we can until we can't live in denial anymore, 
which took a while for me. I yeah. mean, there was a point when I was in my early to mid thirties, when I had some really, I was starting to have some really negative consequences for my drinking. And that the, I was, I had kind of a binge withdrawal pattern. Like I would, I would sober up and spend a week or two not drinking at all, sometimes a whole month. And then I'd be just kind of like white knuckling it the whole time. And then I'd really just dive off the deep end when I'd start again. And just for a couple of weeks, just like nonstop drinking. And, and then when I try to sober up again, because I had some event coming up that I had to be sober for, uh, <laughs> it would, it would just get harder and harder every time. And it would be really scary. And, and my anxiety was getting worse and worse. And, to the point where I was having panic attacks all the time. And, and I ended up checking myself into a rehab at one point, kind of dipping my toes into the idea of recovery, but not really fully ready. And after I got out of that, um, it was only a matter of, you know, a few weeks before I was back to it. And then over the next few years, it got worse and worse still until I was basically agoraphobic. Like I couldn't go out without without a lot of drinks or or some kind of pill to, to relax my nerves and and it just got to the point where it was i i was sick and tired of being sick and tired you know feeling completely disconnected from life and the way that addiction usually leads to you know it went from all the way from being a fun thing to do with friends to something to avoid panic attacks until i passed out on my couch and that was no fun. It was just, I felt sick. I felt anxious. I felt disconnected. I felt spiritually just sort of bottomed out and without much meaning or purpose in my life, if any. And I had two choices at that point. And it was either keep going the direction I was going until I die, which is where it was headed. You know, just yeah. it was going to keep getting worse until I died or decide that's not what I want. I actually want to return to life. And there's more in this life for me to try to reconnect with. Happy Sober Day, friends. For additional episodes of The Sobriety Diaries or to apply to be a guest on the show, check us out on the web at thesobrietydiaries.com or for our video interviews, head over to youtube.com slash Nate Kelly. And don't forget to rate and review our show on whatever platform you're listening on. It truly helps others to find the show. And in turn, we really could help save lives with just a few clicks. Thanks so much for downloading today's episode. And now back to our story. So I was lucky enough to have that moment of clarity, I guess, if you want to call it that, of recognizing those were my choices and I and I do choose to live again. And I had a lot of support. It was wonderful. You know, of course, having support is so important. And I, I just, I didn't even know what it was going to look like just starting to walk in the other direction. But thankfully, I found myself in some good hands. I started at the Betty Ford Center here in Southern California. And it went from being terrifying, you know, checking into detox and all that, to within a matter of a couple of weeks, starting to feel really empowered and inspired for the first time in a long time. And a lot of it had to do with the element of service, you know, being able to offer myself in a helpful way, which was something I didn't think I had anything to offer for a long time after I left the band. And now I was supporting my my brothers, you know, in this little community and and feeling that I uh, there was more to life than this this small world that I'd created of self-obsession, you know, how I'm feeling <laughs> at any given yeah. moment.
It's interesting when when that switch sort of happens and we realize that the world is not revolving around us, right? And, and to be able to offer things to other people and to be of service, I think, is when I realized that recovery or sobriety is not just not drinking. There is a vast world of things that I can, you know, offer myself to and be of service with. And that is sort of when that switch happened for me in realizing that. Yeah, and that's that's the amazing gift of recovery because you do it initially just because you're tired of feeling the way you're feeling. Yeah. But then you realize in doing the things you need to do in order to establish and maintain sobriety, you actually start getting all this other stuff you hadn't anticipated, like right. getting getting your confidence back, starting to have some self-esteem because you're doing esteemable acts, you know, starting to feel connected to people and to life and to something larger than yourself, which brings a sense of meaning into your life. And for me, it led to a sense of purpose because I had been sitting around since I'd felt that my purpose was gone since I left the band, because that had been my whole identity. Right. I had been sitting around waiting for something else to, to bring meaning and purpose into my life and just thinking it's never going to come because I've already lost it. Right. And then all of a sudden it kind of dawned on me in, in, at a certain point in early recovery I've been sitting around waiting for purpose to kind of knock me on the head and not realizing that purpose is something that I can create for myself, you know, finding, going out and finding, what are my passions? What are the things that fill me up? What are the things that make me feel purposeful when I do them? Mm. And in discovering those things, I discovered new talents and I discovered new passions and, and it drove me forward into this almost new addiction, you know, <laughs> a very positive addiction yeah, to yeah. You know, this natural high that comes from um, connectedness and spiritually feeling um, like there's something about life that's worth living, mm. you know. That's a great segue. So what did the pathway look like? You know, how far into recovery did you realize that this life of service or helping others may be your new addiction? What was that path like? Well, it was a really natural progression for me. Um, when I was in early recovery, uh, several people told me, but one in particular, my therapist, who who was a drug counselor, had a similar story. He was a he was a musician as a young man, and then went back to school after getting sober in middle age to become a therapist and a drug counselor. He said to me early on in my recovery, he said, "When you're at your one year sober birthday, you know you're almost." not going to be able to recognize the person you were when you were in your addiction. You're going to feel totally different. And at two or three years, you're going to be doing things you couldn't have imagined you would be doing when you were in your addiction. And at five years, your life will look entirely different than anything you could have possibly imagined. And I I just chuckled when he said that, you know, just kind of like, I don't know how to wrap my head around that. I don't know what right. that means. Uh, but he was absolutely right. And it wasn't because I had some five-year plan and I knew exactly where I was going to go and where it was going to lead me. It was just each day doing the next indicated action that felt purposeful, that felt meaningful, that felt fulfilling. And it started with that sense of purpose, just two weeks into sobriety, just helping another guy who was shaking like a leaf to his room and acclimating him to the process and assuring him that everything's going to be okay, offering that support. That was like such a meaningful experience for me that I just kept following that feeling. And after I was done with uh, my inpatient and then some outpatient stuff, about six months into, into recovery, I started volunteering at a, an IOP, an outpatient program, just going and co-leading groups 
and offering support to my peers, people just starting the program. And that was the best thing in my sobriety. I was just, I would show up and give of myself in a helpful way. And it made me feel good about myself. It made me feel connected to people in a, in a really meaningful way. And I was getting a lot of positive feedback too. So that helped my, my confidence. You know, people were saying, you, you know, you really have a knack at this for somebody who's never done this before. Yeah. Your ability to sort of, uh, you know, articulate the, the ideas of recovery and to be empathic and sit with people and, and offer them support. So it got me thinking. It got me thinking about what the next stage of my life was going to be. And, and I started applying to grad schools <laughs> and I got into Pepperdine and like a month later, I'm taking classes in clinical psychology to become a therapist. And I thought I would just, you know, I'd work at a, at a recovery center and be a recovery therapist of some kind. Yeah. Drug counselor or something, but it, it kind of expanded my horizons. I found a new passion for psychology and mental health and uh, by the time I was, you know, a year or so into my master's program, I realized I had this story to tell that was hopeful and hopefully inspiring to people that were going through some of the things that I had gone through. So I started writing my book, Harder to Breathe, while I was still in grad school getting my master's degree, which is not something I would normally recommend. But for me, it was. How <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> was there time in the day? Damn. Yeah, you know, I was really fortunate uh, to be in the position that I was in. I didn't have a day job or anything like that. And I was able to dedicate myself fully to those two pursuits wholly. you know, just my studies and then and then this mission that I was on two missions, really to become a therapist and help people one on one, but also to now kind of step back out into the world in slightly more public way and tell my story, which I didn't even really think it through completely, but was the beginnings of becoming an advocate, you know, a mental health yeah. advocate. So that's, that's it. Again, it was just kind of a natural progression. And, and then I started working as a therapist as I got out of school and then I got this book published and that's kind of led to me getting out into the world and speaking, telling my story, telling the things I've learned. And that has been just another level of fulfillment because I feel like the things I'd been doing at the recovery center or in AA meetings, just telling my story, I'm now doing on a slightly larger stage and have an ability to tap back into that old life, which I had been ready to put behind me and realize it, it, it keeps offering me more, you know, I'm grateful for the experience, but now it also offers me this platform to reach people in a helpful way. So it's all just been really one thing leading to the next in a really awesome way. And I find myself at this point in life, having even to make choices now about like, which, which thing is the greatest thing for me to pursue <laughs> of all these cool things that I'm pursuing. It's a wonderful place to be. It's an interesting, almost full circle moment, getting back on stage for a different reason. Are there some of those same feelings that, that bubble up before you walk on stage to give a speech or talk about recovery and mental health that it did with your bandmates? It's interesting. You know, back when we started the band, strangely enough, I didn't feel much stage fright. I think that uh, I was mostly excited to perform, you know, like playing the drums was such a release for me. I was kind of a shy, introverted kid by nature, but that was my expression. That was where I really felt like I could just let loose 
And it wasn't so much about performing for people as much as it was just like bashing people's eardrums in. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Were you a marching band kid, by the way? I wanted to ask you. No, no. I no. was a garage rocker. Never took Got a it. drum lesson. Okay. Self-taught. Just watching, you know, late 80s, early 90s MTV and, and yeah. Emulator My Heroes. Yeah, it was really just getting on stage and just kind of doing my best impression of Tommy <laughs> Lee and then like <laughs> Dave Grohl. What happened, though, with everything that happened on the road when I broke down, there was trauma involved with that, which I had a hard time for a long time calling it trauma. As a therapist now and understanding the different forms of trauma and realizing how it affected me, I can call it that now. And I think it is helpful for me to think of it in that way. And it affected my relationship to performance so that now when I go on stage to speak, uh, I get some of those old feelings. I get excited in the way that I did when I was a kid about having something to offer going out there and doing my best with something. But at the same time, I get that trauma response. You know, I get a little bit more shaky and anxious, but I recognize what it is and I'm able to breathe through it. And then once I get up there and I start talking, it kind of all goes away a couple sentences in. And yeah. then I find myself in this, in this calm place, recognizing I'm here for a reason. It, this isn't a fluke that I'm up here. I'm not an imposter, you know? <laughs> right, right. It's like I, I've lived, you know, this long in my life and been through everything I have. And it's nothing else. It's offered me all of these things I have to share to an audience. And so I, I just kind of fall into this place of like, this is a wonderful position to be in and all the nerves are worth it. And I, I think each time I do it, I get a little bit more comfortable. And, and I'm also at a place in my life where things that make me anxious kind of excite me. I spent so long just running away from the things that made me uncomfortable. And that didn't do any anything other than really make it worse, really. Right. So now, like, I see those things as opportunities to grow and to overcome something and, and take on a, a new challenge. That's as much of the incentive for me as it is, you know, to be of service. <laughs> Ryan, what are your thoughts on the importance of coupling therapy with addiction recovery? Well, I don't think there is a, a one-size-fits-all approach to for everyone. You know, there are those, you know, Bible-thumping AA people that, you know, will say, <laughs> you just need a good old-fashioned AA. And that does work for a lot of people. And I, I wouldn't knock that at all if that's what works for you. For me, it was, it was a more holistic approach. You know, I AA was part of my story. Therapy was a big part of my story. And my recovery sort of plan has evolved continually. And that's what I love about it. I got sober in the rooms, but I didn't see that working for me solely. So, you know, I've added things along the way and this sort of online recovery space has been huge, but I love that it can evolve to your point. I guess the one thing I would say to fully answer your question, though, is that I think we all find out at a certain point that a substance problem is just a substance problem. Like, it's not the cause. There's a reason why we ended up with a substance problem right. beyond just, oh, this thing tastes really good and, and makes me feel, <laughs> feel good. Yeah. There's a reason why we ended up seeking out that escape or that numbing or whatever it is that we're using that substance for. And so... You know, some people are able to access that level of therapy just in the 12 steps or in other group formats. But I think that for most of us doing, you know, your own therapy, working through the issues that drive the addiction at some point, once you've gotten some abstinence underneath you, you know, yeah. I think that that can be helpful for anyone if you're really willing to do that work. Again, it's not just about getting that substance out of your life. It's about learning to to thrive, you know, learning to change your relationship with yourself and, and grow in ways that you couldn't have ever anticipated. 
And so that's, that's a never ending journey, you know, in life where hopefully if we're lucky, we continue to grow and evolve throughout our life and discover new aspects of ourselves. And so I certainly would never discourage someone from taking it to the next level in that way and doing their own therapy. Ryan, I like to close with offering a few tangible things or takeaways to a listener who perhaps is still struggling today. What are a few steps someone can take today to start that path of recovery? Well, I think the biggest thing is hard to recognize when you're in the middle of it. That's probably true for most people in addiction is just how isolating it, it becomes, mm. right? There's a reason why connection and purpose were so impactful for me in terms of my recovery. It's because addiction is a disease of disconnection and of our, you know, isolation and our world getting smaller and smaller, asking for help, finding connection, finding community, finding a way to work your way back into life. That can be the impetus for recovery, or it could be the thing that really makes your recovery worthwhile. At some point, we have to step out of our little worlds where, you know, how we feel on any given minute is all that we're consumed with. My issue with the 12 steps uh, initially before I, I fell in love with it was this higher power idea and the, the religious nature of it. I didn't consider myself a really spiritual person until I realized that whether or not I believe in an, a higher power in the religious sense or not, I have to recognize that the drink has become my higher power, right? It's become the answer to all of my problems. It's become the thing that I think about the first minute I wake up and the last minute before I go to sleep, it's all consuming. And so it really is a matter of just finding something else to replace that with. And for me, it was just this feeling of connection and purpose, you know, connecting to people again, connecting to um, something that felt meaningful to me about the way that I was living my life. So you're not going to find that if you continue looking for it in a bottle, um, the glass next to you on your couch, you're only going to find it by going out back into the world and re-engaging with life. It's a great point. When people struggle to identify a higher power or understanding the concept of it, we have spent X amount of time over the last, you know, however long worshiping for lack of a better word, this bottle. I haven't heard it put that way before, but it's essentially, you know, the substance that we used, we were holding it as our higher power. So I like that you sort of made that reference. It's great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's close it out, Ryan, with who is Jane? Tell us who Jane is. <laughs> Jane was Adam's girlfriend at the time we were writing the songs that became songs about Jane. Yeah. She was, uh, there's a girl here in Southern California. She was actually friends with my girlfriend too. And Adam met her separately from that. So that was kind of a small Weird. world thing. She was a sweet girl. You know, I only got a glimpse into their relationship through the songs, really. I never saw all the drama that was going on, apparently. Got really. it. She was like going to school in New York and then she was back in LA and they were, they, they kept breaking up and getting back together. And so I guess it was pretty tumultuous. And so there's songs on that album that were about the good times, all the flirtation and fun. And then there's songs that were about, you know, the the breakups and the, and yeah. the heart. So that's kind of why I think that album worked so well, just from a thematic standpoint, because it kind of runs right. the gamut from the honeymoon phase to the, the uh, down and dirty. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those relationships usually make the best music, right? <laughs> I, when I listen to that record now, I mean, 
it was hard for a long time to listen to that record. And I think all of us were so inside of it that we couldn't appreciate what was great about it. But having had so many years pass since then, I, it was a great intersection because we started out as like a grunge band in the in the early 90s and very dark and heavy. And then we overcompensated into this really bright <laughs> and melodic, you know, very upbeat, positive sound. And Songs About Jane was just kind of like this intersection of those worlds for us where it had that darker, edgier feel and sound to it. And the subject matter was, you know, just there was a lot of churning bluesy energy in it where Adam was at in his life and where we were all as young men in our lives. Uh, but then there's also that that really bright, beautiful, optimistic side, the other half of our being as a band at that point. So I really just love hearing that intersection of of songs that sound really hopeful and really sweet and romantic. And then this really dark and edgy side too. <laughs> There's some iconic drum riffs and, and I mean, harder to breathe. It's, it's a great example. Like at the beginning, there's, you know, are you at a place where now you can look back and, I mean, we talked a little about gratitude and, and being able to look at that stage of your life and, you know, not only for how it ended or the bad times, but the, the gratitude and, and the beauty of it as well. Absolutely. You know, I have nothing but gratitude for the whole experience of that record of making it, you know, having, having been a part of, of putting something on the world that I think is really special. It's only because it's been 20 years that I'm able to say that. And, and if I were still in the band, I might be a little bit more bashful about it, but I, you know, it's like, that was something I lived at one point in my life and I didn't talk about it for a long time. And, and now that I'm in a different place in my life and kind of reflecting on that and having closure to a certain extent, but also kind of reopening <laughs> some of that because realizing that it is still a part of me i'm able to really recognize that those those were really special times that what came out of it was really special and that you know it may never be exactly like that again you know it was just a, a moment in time and a, but i cherish it for what it was ryan what's the best way for people to reach out or find you if they're interested in coaching or therapy uh, well, you can find me. I have a website, ryandusick.com, which really I try to keep up to date with everything I'm doing. But, you know, it's a, it's a one stop shop in terms of my book, Harder to Breathe, and my speaking engagements and my work as a therapist and coach. You can reach out to me there to book a session or to book me as a speaker. So that's kind of the one stop shop. But I also Instagram is kind of the place I, I post a lot of fun stuff, you know, old videos of the, yeah. of the band and, you know, videos of me speaking and stuff like that. So that's uh, at Ryan Michael Dusick is my handle on Instagram. Well, Harder to Breathe is available now. Ryan, thank you so much for your time today. Such a pointed conversation. You were able to express, A, the, the mental health side of things, which I'm a huge proponent for, and, and therapy and coupling it with addiction, recovery, everything I could have asked for. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Nate. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening today, friend. Hopefully you heard something that resonates with you. And if we help just one person, our job is done. Make sure you check today's show notes for all the information discussed in today's episode and how to connect with our guests. Until next Wednesday, try your best not to drink and be good to yourself. Bye, everyone.